questions about marriage, the inevitable question came up, what about divorce? The Pharisees asked Jesus the same question. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. (laughs) Even the disciples didn't like to think that there was no way out of marriage. Well, Paul begins his discussion of divorce by simply reaffirming God's original plan that couples stay together. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. Paul begins by referring to what Jesus said about marriage and divorce. And again, Jesus said, Have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God's plan for the home does not include divorce. Ray Steadman put it this way, God designed marriage as a kind of locked room into which he thrusts a couple who think they know each other very well. He turns the key in the lock, throws the key away, and says, now get to know each other, no matter what happens. That's what marriage is for. It's to provide an unbreakable bond, a security, within which you work out the differences that will arise in your relationship. That's why we make vows 
before God and witnesses when we get married. And contrary to the popular assumption, marriage vows are not mere formality, nor are they merely a statement of emotion. They are a commitment to action. They are a promise to stick together for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. They are designed to lock you into the room of matrimony and throw away the key. You can't promise to always feel about your spouse a certain way. Feelings come and go. But you can promise what you are going to do no matter what. C.S. Lewis makes this very clear in Mere Christianity when he writes, Christianity teaches that marriage is for life. Everyone who has been married in a church has made a public, solemn promise to stick to his or her partner till death. The duty of keeping that promise has no special connection with sexual morality. It is in the same position as any other promise. To this, someone may reply that he regarded the promise made in church as a mere formality and never intended to keep it. Whom then was he trying to deceive when he made it? God? That was very unwise. The bride or bridegroom or the in-laws? That was treacherous. Most often, I think the couple, or one of them, hoped to deceive the public. They wanted the respectability that is attached to marriage without intending to pay the price. That is, they were imposters. They cheated. If people do not believe in permanent marriage, it is perhaps better that they should live together unmarried than that they should make vows they do not mean to keep. It is true that by living together without marriage, they will be guilty and Christianized of fornication. But one fault is not mended by adding another. Unchastity is not improved by adding perjury. The idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. And of course, the promise made when I am in love and because I am in love, to be true to the beloved as long as I live, commits one to being true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be about things I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling a certain way. That's what a wedding is intended to do. It puts your relationship onto a more stable foundation than emotional feelings about one another. Therefore, to the married, Paul says the wife should not leave her husband, nor should the husband leave or send away his wife. That is in keeping with what Jesus said, and it reflects God's intention in marriage, that one man 
one woman become one flesh, one inseparable unit. Marriage is for life. That is the plan. But there's a problem. And Paul recognizes it with his parenthetical statement in verse 11. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The problem is that in spite of God's plan, some do leave their mates. They pick the lock on the door and God allows it. He doesn't stop them. Now, it might come as a shock to hear that God allows couples to separate when he says they shouldn't. But it really shouldn't shock us. You know, God allows us the freedom to lie, to steal, and to kill. So why should we be shocked to hear that God allows divorce? It's not part of his plan, and it is never God's will. So don't try to convince yourself that God wants you to get a divorce. To do so would be as futile as trying to convince yourself that God wants you to murder your neighbor. But God does allow it. When asked why Moses allowed divorce, and he was a prophet of God, remember, Jesus responded, because of the hardness of your heart. It's because of man's hardness of heart that God allows divorce. It's because some men and women refuse to do what God wants. And in marriage, you have two people. And if even one of them has a hard heart, that marriage may end in divorce. Still, Paul's instruction to those who are responsive to God's will in that situation is to remain unmarried or else be reconciled to their mate. Just because you are left or the situation gets so bad that you must leave doesn't give you the right to remarry. True, your spouse may have a hard heart. He may be unresponsive to God, but he is still your mate. And God is in the business of changing hearts. It's always possible that he or she might yield to the lordship of Christ and reconciliation can take place. As long as that's possible, as long as reconciliation is a possibility, a Christian separated from his or her mate is to remain unmarried. Now, what makes reconciliation impossible? Well, obviously, one thing is if your mate marries someone else, then reconciliation is impossible. He or she has become someone else's husband or wife. Now, it is true that by marrying someone else, they have committed adultery against you. 
but for them to return to you would make them commit adultery against their current mate and would even make you guilty of adultery. The Old Testament law specifically forbade a couple from remarrying after a mate had divorced a spouse, married someone else, and then wanted to come back. So if your mate has remarried, you are no longer obligated to remain unmarried, hoping for reconciliation. You obviously come under the exception Jesus mentioned. Your mate has been immoral, unfaithful to you. And you are therefore free to marry again without the fear of committing adultery yourself. Of course, that exception also applies even if an unfaithful mate doesn't actually marry someone else. But Paul doesn't mention that here. And I believe the reason he doesn't mention it is because he knew many in the Corinthian church had, before their conversion, been unfaithful to their mates, quite possibly with the temple prostitutes that descended upon the city every evening. And he does not want them to justify a divorce on the basis of sin in their old life. You see, adultery can be forgiven. When they came to Christ, all past sins were forgiven, and as they had been forgiven, so were they to forgive one another. In fact, even recent unfaithfulness doesn't mean a divorce must necessarily follow. Forgiveness and reconciliation is, of course, the preferred course of action for a Christian. But if your spouse is now someone else's spouse, reconciliation is no longer possible and remarriage is permissible with, of course, The same stipulation Paul put on widows in verse 39, that being that you only marry in the Lord, that you marry a fellow believer. So God's plan is for couples to remain together for life. But the problem is that not everyone does what God wants. Even Christians don't always do what God wants them to do. And you get into a real predicament when only one person in the marriage is a Christian. And while Christians are forbidden from marrying non-Christians, from being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, it is possible for someone to become a Christian after their marriage and the result is a mixed marriage. No doubt that was a very common situation in the early church, and Paul next deals with that predicament, verses 12 through 16. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her. Let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet 
If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Since Jesus didn't address this situation, Paul speaks on his own as an apostle. Now, he is not putting this into a different category of authority because the apostolic word is just as binding as that declared by our Lord in person. But he is making a distinction between what God or what Jesus actually said and what had been revealed to him as an apostle. Now, that is very, very important. Sometimes people read the scriptures and say, well, that's just Paul talking. He's an apostle of God. When he speaks, it has the full authority, as does the words of Jesus. Paul is answering a question Jesus didn't ask. Jesus hadn't been asked what Paul had apparently been asked, questions about mixed marriages. Now, Paul had already made it clear that to enter into sexual union with a harlot defiles the body of Christ. And some apparently wondered about the union between a Christian and a pagan. Wouldn't that also be defiling? So, if a convert's mate didn't accept Christ, should the Christian leave his or her mate? That was the question. Paul's answer is no. Again, it is never God's will that a couple be divorced. So it's never God's will for a Christian to divorce his or her mate, even if the mate is an unbeliever. And there's no need to be concerned about being defiled by an unbelieving mate. On the contrary, Paul says the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believer. Now, that does not mean that he or she is saved by virtue of the fact that their mate is a Christian. That may result from the Christian's witness, but it's not automatic. It simply means that they are set apart. They are in a special position to receive grace from God. That since a married couple is one flesh, the guidance and daily mercies shown to the Christian will, of course, affect his or her mate. And the children, Paul adds, are holy. Until they are old enough to choose for themselves, the children of even one believing parent are in a saved relationship with God. They are Christian. The parent's holiness extends to the children. So the presence of a Christian in a home blesses the entire family. The family doesn't defile the Christian. Therefore, Paul says, no, don't leave your unbelieving mate. 
As long as he or she consents to live with you, don't send him or her away. However, if the unbeliever wants to leave, it's a different story. Paul says, let them go. And the phrase used here for let them go is used in other places for divorce. Let them divorce. And, Paul says, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. They are no longer bound to their mate. There's no longer a need to feel obligated to stay married, to fight the divorce, hoping to save your mate. After all, there's no way to know if you will be able to save your mate. So if they refuse to stay with you, now that you've become a Christian, let them go. As one commentary put it, Christ's law forbids the putting away, but it does not forbid the one put away to accept dismissal. Now, it isn't clear whether or not being in bondage means the divorced believer is automatically free to remarry if they're no longer in bondage. Now, that may be the case. And some do refer to this as an exception based on desertion. But in light of what Paul says in verse 11 about remaining unmarried or being reconciled, I don't think anyone should immediately assume they're free to remarry when they let their mate go. Just because someone is let go doesn't mean there's no chance for reconciliation, unless, of course, he or she remarries. The best procedure for a Christian is always to wait until there is no possibility for reconciliation before contemplating remarriage. Then some might ask, what if your marriage and even your divorce took place before you became a Christian? Doesn't that change everything? Since your slate has been wiped clean, your sins forgiven, can't you just start fresh in everything, including marriage? Well, Paul answers that by stating a very important principle about our circumstances and relationships and the need to remain in the condition in which we were called. Verses 17 through 24. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called us, in this manner let him walk. And this I direct in all the churches. Was any man called already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. 
Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Becoming a Christian does not change a man's heritage or position in life, nor does it invalidate previous commitments or relationships. Paul says, don't worry about whether you've been circumcised or not. Your heritage as a Jew or a Gentile makes no difference one way or another. Just be concerned about keeping the commandments of God, following the new covenant he's made with you. And don't be concerned about your status in society. If you were a slave when you became a Christian, don't worry about gaining your freedom. If you get the opportunity, fine, take it. But don't assume just because you become a Christian, you can throw down the shackles of slavery and walk away. You become Christ's freedman. You are free in spirit. But becoming a Christian doesn't mean you are free from former obligations. The application to marriage, which is the context in which this is written, I think is obvious. Paul is saying, if you were married when you became a Christian, you're still married. Don't seek to change it on the basis of your conversion. Don't use your new status in Christ as an excuse for changing your marital status. For as Barclay points out, the function of Christianity isn't to give a man a new life, but to make his old life new. If you had a bad marriage before becoming a Christian, by all means make it better. Bring Christ into it, but don't try to get out of it. And if you were divorced and remarried before becoming a Christian, don't worry about it. You can't change the past. Just concentrate on making your current marriage one that honors the Lord. On the other hand, if you were merely divorced before your conversion and neither you nor your mate has remarried, seek reconciliation because in spite of legal action, your original commitment should still be honored if possible. Whatever your circumstance before conversion that is still your circumstance after conversion. The only difference is that Christ has been brought into that circumstance or that relationship. Notice that Paul says in verse 24, Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. With God is the only change you're guaranteed and the only one you are to seek. 
God comes into our circumstances and our relationships to bring healing or to give endurance or whatever may be needed to give victory. Christ doesn't take us out of a bad situation. He doesn't take us out of the world. Instead, He enters into that situation with us. Whatever your circumstances this morning, Christ wants to come in. Not to change your circumstances, but to change you. And through that change, to give you victory over your circumstances, whatever they may be. So no matter what your situation, single, married, separated, divorced, or remarried, he loves you and wants to enter into your life. Why don't you let him?